So this morning, as I was um, just giving you a little background here, after having done a 15-part series in California, then come home for a few more weeks and preach 11 times in Singapore, and just getting acclimated to being 14 hours different in time, this week I was thinking to myself, Lord, I don't even know if I want to preach. But the Lord woke me up during the night. And instead of going on Facebook and any social media platform, began reading my Bible on my phone. And God gave me this message entitled, A Convenient Time. And then the next morning early, about maybe 6.30 or 6.15, for those of you that are early morning people, excuse me, I'm from New York. But 6 o'clock is early for me in the morning, and I opened up my phone, and I just started putting all my notes together. And this was um, Friday morning, so we slipped in a little bit more just to catch up on the busyness of the week. And when my wife turned around, she said, what are you doing? I said, my sermon's done. I'm just going to transfer it and format it tonight. So I pray that the message God has given to me can find you where he wants you to be. And uh, it's a title that you may wonder about, but I pray that this morning that the Lord will speak to each of us in the way that he knows is best for our hearts to receive it. Bow your heads with me as I go to the Lord in prayer. Gracious Father, loving Lord, it's always a humbling experience to stand before your watchful eye, your perfection, to know that as a frail human vessel, you will now pour into me and then pour through me. I pray that you'll speak to your people this morning to those who are here, those who are joining us, and that we will understand in the context of this topic today that there's no better time than now to surrender our lives to you as our Lord and our Savior. Take this message and make it everything you intended to be. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. If you have your Bibles, go with me to the book of Acts. And it's also on the screen. Many of you know that I like to have it on the screen so that we could keep up the cadence. And then those who are online, we thank you for joining us. We would like to pray that God will reach you too. Also, through electronic means, it is not impossible for the Spirit of God to work. This is an interesting story. In my other Bible, I'm up to Bible number six, this story is so familiar. I could open my old Bible and know where I was and understand and navigate. And it comes forward with experiences. But this brand new Bible that in the New Testament, I haven't read through the New Testament yet, as my wife and I do together. So there's a lot of highlights that are missing. And when I open my Bible to the New Testament, recognizing my old Bible, I kind of feel lost. Like I just met this person. Whereas in my old Bible, it's soiled, it's little, the pages are darkened, they're a little shrilly. I've got a lot of highlights and underlines. 
and I could use my Bible without any notes and know exactly where I am. So I'm opening a new book, but the joy is the Lord is the same. So this morning, let's dive into a story that I want to begin by reading the verse in Acts chapter 24, verse 25. And as he reasoned about righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come, Felix was afraid and answered, Go away for now. When I have a convenient time, I will call for you. Nineteen eighty-four, Orlando, Florida. We were coming back from a concert that I held in Melbourne, Florida. We had our old jalopy, our old Toyota Corona wagon. We didn't have air conditioning and we didn't have heat. And it just so happened that time of year, it was toward the latter part of the year, that it just happened to be cold in Florida that time. And driving back from Melbourne, my wife had a blanket around her knees as I shivered on my way to the concert there at the Tupperware Auditorium in Kissimmee, Florida. Why was I on my way there after I just held a concert in Melbourne, Florida? My mother-in-law decided that we needed to be at the Heritage Singers concert. She said, I bought tickets and you need to be there. I spent my money and you need to be there. And I said, how much were the tickets? She said, $5. I said, Aunt B, that's a long way to go for $5. She said, you need to be there. So being obedient to my mother-in-law, we got in our car right after the concert. Didn't have CDs or anything at that time. I was just singing and head out. We arrived at the Tupperware Auditorium, and we made it just before halftime when they had made an announcement. We're looking for a new tenor to join our group. And someone turned to me and said, why don't you try out? I thought, well, nah, I don't know. And I, then somebody else said, you could do that. And I said, right, I'll try out. And I auditioned, and it was many, 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 many months. I heard nothing. And I thought to myself, well, you know, that's how it is. They're traveling all over the world. Surely there's somebody else they've decided to hire. Then about seven or eight months later, I got a call from Max Mace. And he said, I'd like, we, we remembered you from Florida, and we'd like you to send us a tape with some songs on it that you're singing. And I did that. And he called me back again. He said, and send me something, another tape with a little different style. And I did that. And I'm thinking, man, is this an interview or what? And then he called and said, we'd like to extend an invitation for you to join Heritage. I said, I'm married. He said, we would not invite you to come without your wife. And that's the first time they hired, they made the decision to hire both of us on the same salary. And my wife was not a singer. And um, my wife is still not a singer. <laughs> but we make beautiful music together. So here we are, brand new, just getting our feet wet, not married long before that. 
And I just, what are we going to do? What does this mean? And they said, well, we're going to be, we have like uh, all these countries lined up. You'll be traveling around the world and singing in different places. And I said, well, but we're just getting started. I mean, we just got married. We're just like, and as we're discombobulated and arguing about what to do, my mother-in-law says, opportunity knocks once. Go. And the rest of the story, most of you know. Our lives took off. God catapulted us into a realm we never thought possible. Because a number of months before that, I was in a Christian concert, talent search in Florida. I came in second. There was a guy that did an original song, came in first, and I was thinking, man, but only one I'd have been able to, the gift was, or the prize was, you get two tickets to go to the Bahamas. And I thought, I'm not going to the Bahamas, Ryan. <laughs> so I so much for that. But God had other plans. Because in the same time that those tickets were to go to the Bahamas, we were in Paris instead. On a 19-country tour. And I thought to myself, what would our lives have been had we hesitated? Had we stood before the wall of, I don't know what's going to happen next, what would our lives have been if we hesitated? Well, now more than 60 countries later, I have some idea. After touching the shores of many lands and even being on this humble platform, I have some idea of what our lives would have been had we hesitated. The Lord gave this to me as I was putting this message together because it's so much a part of my fabric. He put these words in my mind, and I'm going to share it with you. Hesitation is the seed that does not hesitate to produce a harvest of regret. The Lord gave that to me during that night, just a few days ago. Hesitation is the seed that does not hesitate to produce a harvest of regret. I look back on our 39 years of marriage, and there are a lot of things I'd have done differently. But I can say for the most part, we've had a beautiful life. And God is blessing us still. So this morning, I want to take you down a journey. Where under the title, A Convenient Time, you could consider how dangerous it is to hesitate. The backstory of this message is just as important as the message itself. And so I want to walk you through the story that God used to remind me of what it's like when God calls to hesitate. And what it's like when God calls not to hesitate. We begin in Acts chapter 24. If you have your Bibles, go there with me. Acts chapter 24. And let's look at these together. 
I'm still between awake and sleep, so help me out. I feel like I'm still supposed to be sleeping. Because <laughs> it's right now, 2.08 in the morning for me, tomorrow, and I can feel it. So pray for me. 2.08 tomorrow morning. Whew. Acts chapter 24, beginning in verse 1. Now after five days, Annas the high priest came down with the elders and certain orator and a certain orator named Tertullius. These gave evidence to the governor against Paul. I study the background of the story. Paul had come to Caesarea Philippi where he intended to get a break. And there he was, news was circulated that Paul was in Caesarea Philippi, and Paul was just relaxing. That's why the Bible says, now after five days, Paul needed a rest. And he chose, by God's direction, Caesarea Philippi. But when the news was broadcast that Paul was in town, Annas, the high priest, rallied some of the elders together that he knew did not like Paul, Jewish leaders, Jewish elders. And they chose an eloquent lawyer by the name of, I hope I'm saying it right, Tertullius. Sounds good, Tertullus. <laughs> Whatever his name is. I never met the guy, I wouldn't name my kid that name for obvious reasons. But they gathered this eloquent lawyer together and they chose him as the spokesperson to approach the governor and begin, as the Bible says, to give evidence against Paul. We pick up the story in verses 2 and 3. As we go to these verses, the governor that they chose to complain to was Governor Felix. We begin in verse 2 and 3. And when he was called upon, Tertullus began his accusations, saying, he began by massaging Felix. He began by flattery. Let me say something. Watch out when people flatter you. They're up to no good. Because after the flattery, their true intentions are revealed. So he begins to flatter Felix with these words. We read these together. He's saying to Felix, seeing that through you we enjoy great peace and prosperity is being brought to this nation by your foresight. You can hear him flattering him. Felix is smiling as Paul, as, he, as, as Tertullus flatters him and the angry elders and the angry Jewish leaders are standing behind him. Then he says in verse 3, we accept it always. We accept it always. And in all places, most noble Felix, with all thankfulness. In other words, we're so happy that we have you as governor. We like you. We're glad that we are prosperous in Caesarea Philippi. I mean, all because of you, Governor Felix. And Felix feeling good about himself, breathing in his atmosphere of prosperity and self-self-gratification, but the true intention of that meeting comes out 
in verses 4 to 6. Nevertheless, not to be tedious to you any further, in other words, we don't want to take up too much of your time, I beg you to hear by your courtesy, obviously, a few words from us. Then he dives into the true intent of his meeting. For we have found this man a plague, a creator of dissension among all the Jews throughout the world. What an accusation. Throughout the what? Paul is just in Caesarea Philippi. When people say, you know, nobody in the world loves me, I always say, have you been in the world? Everybody in the world hates me. Have you been throughout the world and interviewed everybody in the world? These broad statements are nothing more than demonically motivated. So they wanted their accusation to be so condemning, they said, this man is causing dissension among all the Jews throughout the world. If I was Felix, I'd have said, really? And he's a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. To understand what that meant is he's identified with the man of Nazareth, Jesus, and the followers of the man of Nazareth, Christians. Paul is the ringleader. He continues in verse 6. He even tried to profane the temple, and we seized him and wanted to judge him according to our law. Now, when you look at that accusation, the first accusation is to suggest that Paul is a threat, a public threat, not to just the Jewish leaders, but he's communicating it in such a way that he wants Felix to believe that your position and your place in this community is also in danger because of this man. He's a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. But if you didn't miss it, or if you may have missed it, the Jewish leaders would have carried out their punishment against Paul, but they knew they did not have the authority. And I praise God in this part of the story, this is where God stepped in. You know, sometimes outside of God's grace, people would have done to us what they desired if God did not step in. They would have torn Paul to shreds according to their law. But being in the province where Felix is governor, and this province was not removed from the powers of Rome because Rome ruled the world at that time, there were Roman laws that they could not abrogate. They could not remove. There were qualifications and procedures that they had to follow. But the Jews said, we were so angry with him, we seized him, and we wanted to judge him according to our law. So what stopped them? God sent a Roman soldier to step in, verses 7 to 9. And by the way, this is foundation for the message. But the commander, Lysias, came by and with great violence took him out of our hands. What he meant by that is Lysias saw that the Jews were up to no good and this commander of the Roman army said, give me him. What are you doing? He insinuated his authority by saying, what are you guys up to? Give him to me. And then he continues. 
And this statement is not true. Commanding his accusers to come to you. By examining him yourself, now he goes back to Felix and tries to massage him to acquiesce to their desires. By examining him yourself, you may ascertain all these things of which we accuse him. And then he strengthens the pot to make it difficult for Felix to disagree. And the Jews also assented, maintaining that these things were so. Felix, you got to understand, there's only one man here that's the issue, but you don't want to let him go and get us all angry. You don't want to cause the Jewish leaders to be upset with you. You don't want the elders of the church to be mad at you. These are citizens of your community, and you surely don't want that eloquent lawyer, Tertullus, you'll wake up saying that during the night. <laughs> you don't want him to use his eloquence against you in the future. I mean, he knows the law just like you do. You got all these folk here that want you to decide that we're right and you got this one irritating guy and by the way Felix we're not here because we want to be here we're here because we had no choice Lysias did not give us a choice to deal with him according to our law and then verses 10 to 12 Paul pleads his case before Festus I'll let you read that as your after devotional but I cannot miss what Paul says after he begins to prove his case. He is methodical in his breakdown of the, of the activity as he's there in Caesarea Philippi. Paul understood better than most people that you just don't want to get the Jews angry with you. So Paul, being a, a Hebrew, being a Pharisee, being highly educated, understanding how the Jews operated and their reticent spirit toward those who accepted Christ, he was particular about crossing his T's and dotting his I's religiously. But make no mistake about it, he did not hesitate to proclaim Jesus. They did not like that. But he also knew that the Pharisees and Sadducees didn't even agree with each other theologically. And what a time to use their disagreement as a point of extrication. So Paul says, as he pleads his case before Felix, I love what he says in verse 13. He says, nor can they prove the things of which they now accuse me. And you know what? Let me go, go New York. Ain't nobody stepping forward to say anything. They're just hoping that their prior accusations is enough to get Felix to decide to dispense with the Apostle Paul. But we now go to verse 14, where Paul, where the writer, Dr. Luke, reveals a key component of the situation and why Felix finds himself in a predicament. Look at verse 14. But this I confess to you, Paul speaking, that he brings into the picture something that he knows can connect with Felix that according to the way which they call a sect, so I worship God, the God of my fathers, believing all things which, and now he appeals to Festus' religious side, 
all things which are written in the law and the prophets. He's saying, if anybody knows, Felix, you know that I'm doing what's right. I'm standing by all the law, all the prophets, and I am living according to the way. The Jewish leaders referred to Christians as a sect. They call them the way. And you know, the more things change, the more they stay the same. Because whenever you follow the way, society finds a label to put on you to make you seem adverse to the entire religious community. Kind of like cult. Have you heard that before? It's not new. They did that to those following the way then. And the devil does it today. We met a young man in California not too long ago, Mario Martinez, a young man who came to our meetings there in Pleasant Hill. And when I pr presented the sermon on, the, the, on the, the redemptive power of Christ to save us and change us, he came to me and he said, now I know why they call you a cult. Because they don't want to hear such a beautiful message about the redemptive grace of Christ. Amen, somebody. And another lady in Singapore said the same thing to us. When we were revealing to her, she says, but we cannot keep the commandments. And wasn't the Sabbath nailed to the cross? And isn't it just for the Jews? And I responded to all of those questions and statements by showing her the Bible. And she said, now I know why they call you a cult, because you understand your Bible. See, that's what the devil does. So they tried to pepper Felix's mind, but Paul reached across the bow and said, Felix, if anybody, know that, if anybody knows that I'm doing right, you know because you are familiar with the way that I worship. I'm doing it exactly according to what you know as the governor of Caesarea Philippi. And then from verses 16 to 18, Paul reiterates his dedication, and then he ends with these words. Look at verse 19. He says, speaking about all his accusers, they ought to have been here before you if they had anything against me. So, nobody's speaking up. And Paul is saying, they ought to have been here before you to object if they had anything against me. Paul is saying, so, Felix, what actually is happening here? All that stuff that the elders and the Jewish leaders and Tertullus. <laughs> I promise that name won't be in my sermon next Sabbath. Of all the things they accuse me of, how come they not say anything now? And I know you can't wait to verse 20, so let's go there. Or else, Paul continues, let those who are here themselves say if they found any wrongdoing in me while I stood before the council. Come on, speak up now. I'm here, you're here, say something. Before I read verse 21, let me make this statement. Sometimes insinuation is worse than accusation. Sometimes just suggesting that somebody did something wrong do, does more harm than you proving it. Sometimes you don't have to prove anything. You just got to say, I think they stole some money. Like they do in court. They say, 
Will the jurors please ignore that comment? How am I supposed to do that? Press delete on their brain? <laughs> That's a clever. Did you kill him? Would the, ju would the jury please ignore that comment? <laughs> That's exactly what you remember. Uh, he told us to ignore it. Let's write that down. <laughs> Insinuation sometimes is worse than having to prove something wrong. So Paul says in verse 21, unless, now, this, now he brings out the issue, unless it is for this one statement which I cried out, standing among them, then he says, look at this, the issue comes to the forefront. Concerning the resurrection of the dead, I am being judged by you this day. Now, I, I, I alluded to this earlier, but let me bring it to the forefront. The Sadducees and the Pharisees had differing views about the resurrection, and Paul chose this moment to focus them on each other and away from him. That was clever. Y'all need to argue this out, and I'm not here for any reason that's between you two. You guys deal with your issues, but what you're accusing me of, I'm standing firmly on it. Paul clearly taught, and that's why 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the entire chapter, Paul did not want this very same issue to be a roadblock at the church in Corinth. And so he spends an entire chapter addressing the issue of the resurrection. For if Christ is not risen, our faith is in vain. We are yet in our sins. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we have all men most miserable. Paul spends the entire chapter making it very clear about his position concerning the resurrection. But by the way, I say it again, this is just the foundation. So the question is, the story comes into sharper focus in the next verse, but let me lay some foundation. Felix knew that Paul was innocent. But Felix was confronted with a conflicted spirit. How do I disagree with a lawyer? How do I disagree with the Jewish leaders, upstanding religious people of my community? How do I, how do I disagree with the elders? How do I condemn a Roman citizen? And so far, they have not given me any legitimate reason to accuse him. So what does he do? Look at verse 22. But when Felix had heard these things, having a more accurate knowledge of the way. That's key. He adjourned the proceedings and said, when Lysias, the commander, comes down, I will make a decision on your case. So what does he do? He adjourns the proceedings. Jewish leaders, go. I'll call you later. Elders, go. Tertullus, get out of here. <laughs> There's some words in the Bible I wish were never there. That's one of them. Sorry, Tertullus, I hope you're not hearing me. And I know he's not. So Felix knew about the way. The Bible says that Felix 
having a more accurate knowledge of the way, he knew that that was not some adversarial sect, but that was a burgeoning, growing movement dedicated to the person of Christ. He knew that to decide in Paul's favor would to turn all those adversaries against him, he knew to decide in their favor would to falsely accuse the Apostle Paul, and Paul stood firmly as a Roman citizen. This is the foundation when they wanted to put Paul in prison and let him out without any kind of adverse influence or impact. This is when Paul says, I appeal to Caesar. And that's the rest of the story which you'll read later on beginning in Acts chapter 25. A beautiful, long, long story about the shipwreck on his way to Rome. So Felix, understanding how difficult things were for Paul, he says in verse 23, be nice to him. Don't prevent his friends from coming to visit him. Just be nice to Paul. He wanted Paul to know, I'm not, I'm not condemning you. I'm with you, but I can't say it. So just be nice to him. Let his friends come to see him. And some time goes by, a few days go by, and Felix now, having to try to figure out a way to resolve his dilemma, holds another meeting different from the first meeting. And by the way, as I lead you to this, this is the final meeting that is recorded in Scripture because in this meeting, it's not just Felix and Paul, but this time Felix brings his wife, and I think I got her name right, Drusilla. Any of you have a wife named Drusilla? <laughs> Let's look at verses 24 and 25. And after some days, when Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish, very significant, she understood the way also. He sent for Paul and heard him. Now he's got an audience, just the two of them. And Paul and the Holy Spirit is there. And heard him concerning the faith in Christ. Now, as he reasoned, Paul is, now, Paul is now sharpening his message because he doesn't have the adversarial crowd like the Jews and the elders and that other guy. <laughs> now, as he reasoned about righteousness, let me go back. And after some days when Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish, he sent for Paul and heard him concerning what? The faith in Christ. Now, as he reasoned about three things, let's say it together. What is the first? Righteousness. The next one is self-control and what else? And the judgment to come. Felix was afraid and answered. That's where the convicting power of the Spirit of God Felix, you don't have anybody to blame. There's nobody here that you have to please. Just me, Paul, and the convicting power of the Spirit. Sometimes you are in a position that even though the crowd may not be present, you know that your decision will affect everyone. And Felix saying, wait a minute, I'm a public figure. What would happen if the Jews heard that I decided to follow Paul? 
what would happen if the Jews decided that I, if the Jews heard that I accepted the way, just like Paul supports the way? What would that do to my career? Let me say something, brethren. It is better not to be politically correct when religion and your eternity is involved. Say amen, somebody. So often we make decisions for political reasons that affect our eternal salvation because we want to be accepted by the community that we live in rather than by the God that we worship. One of the reasons I can't wait for Jesus to come is that politics will be no more. Amen. Sick of it. I don't care if you're left or right. I'm in the middle. <laughs> That's not in my sermon. That was free. But I want to bring this into focus. The three most important things that we have to concern ourselves with as it relates to Christ is righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come. There's nothing more important in this life than that's why I've been focusing lately in my Wednesday night Bible studies on what does it mean to live a righteous life. Here's my point. You can know the Adventist message back and forth. You can recite and teach the 28 fundamentals. But if your life is not righteous, you are the most educated person that will be in hell. Down in hell, teaching the 2300 days. You see, the righteous life will determine our stand in the judgment. And no coincidence, because righteousness now bleeds over into whether or not you are a person that will exhibit self-control. There's some folk that know the doctrines very well, but they'll tell you off in a heartbeat. No self-control. And then there are those that live as though there is no judgment. And Paul says... I'm going to tell you like it is, Felix, because you know there's something more down the road that you need to be concerned about rather than your political position. And so what Paul is dealing with is, in fact, exactly what so many of us are dealing with. And what's sad about the story is Felix winds up this part of the story by saying, when I have a more convenient time, I'll give you, I'll text you. I'll send you an email. I'll call you. And I got to say it, a moment of hesitation can cause you a lifetime of regret. I'm going there. So let me segue now between the foundation. By the way, I'm going to say this again. That was all foundation. We have to spend some time to get to that verse, verse 25. Now that we're there, let's dive into the heart of the message. A moment of hesitation can and will cause you a lifetime of regret. So today we're going to talk about what is hesitation. Hesitation is the sin that eventually brings regret. It doesn't appear to be a sin at the moment you hesitate, but it has a result. To hesitate in the moment is to lay foundation for the future. So people that say, well, you know, I will, be, I will join your church, but I will give my life to Christ. However, I know the Sabbath is true. However, I know that what you're saying is true, but to be almost saved is to be wholly lost. And it all comes down to hesitation. Hesitation. 
So what is hesitation? For those of you that may not know, let me define it. Hesitation is the delay due to uncertainty of mind or fear. Hesitation means you start questioning the action that the moment is prompting. Are you going to do it or are you not going to do it? Are you going to follow the Lord or are you not going to follow the Lord? Do you believe that this is true and what are you going to do about it? Do you believe it's true and do you have any intention to do anything at all about it? It is the moment that you begin to question your actions. And that action could be, that hesitation could be good or bad. Let me talk about good hesitation. Good hesitation is when you are confronted with a decision that can hurt someone else. It pays to double think what you're about to do. If what you're about to do is going to hurt somebody, you better think about that. That's good hesitation. But hesitation more times than not is linked to a negative outcome. And here's the reason why I studied into this. Because most of us hesitate because we link our feelings to our decision. And our feelings, we legitimize them by saying, now, if I accept the Sabbath, what about my family? They have to answer for themselves. Don't put your family on the scale of your eternal salvation. And don't say, what, what, what will my friends think? What will they think? They have to answer for themselves. Don't put your friends or your job or your salary or your position on the scales of eternity and decide, oh, I can't, I can't handle that. Get your feelings out of the picture and look beyond the moment to realize this is a grand moment to make a decision to completely commit your life to Christ. Well, there's a whole lot that comes with that. But the problem with hesitation is this. Hesitation means it's going to come up again, and you hesitate again. It comes up again, you hesitate again. It comes up again, you hesitate again. And unknowingly, you are training your mind to develop a character. You are training your actions to become a character, your character to become a what? Destiny. And the more you hesitate repetitively, you have said to your mind, making a decision about this is not that important. But here's the dangerous side of that. You might say, well, the next time they have a Revelation seminar, I'll give my life to Christ. That's a lie. Because you have told yourself that hesitation is just fine. And there are some people that are going to be lost, not because they don't believe it, but they hesitate to accept it. They're going to be folk in the fires of destruction that, dis, that agree with the Sabbath, agree with everything the Bible says, but their hesitation is spelled B-U-T. But. And when you hesitate, the wise man Solomon says, your character starts to control. For as he thinks, in his heart, what friends say it, so is he. Proverbs 23 and verse 7. What happens when the mind and heart merges, it develops in us a character that from that moment on defines who we are. Like the smokers. One guy says, I'm a smoker. I could quit any time. I've quit several times. <laughs> right, Mary Kay? <laughs> Mary's finally got the victory. Can you say Amen. But before you get that ultimate victory, people say, I've quit several times. I can quit any time I want to. Stop lying to yourself. 
Your character is in control until you throw yourself on the cross of Christ like Ramona did. Say, Lord, if you want me to follow you, take this cigarette away. And what did he do? He took it away. That, that human hesitation can only be deleted by a divine transaction. You can't quit when you want to. You don't have that kind of willpower. Because you didn't say, not my will, but your will be done. You said, not your will, but my will be done. And when you do that, your will will be done. And in the end, you will be done. So when the mind merges, it develops a character. And so what we're going to find out today is how to deal with that hesitation. But in order to deal with hesitation, in order to deal with hesitation, we have to first learn its origin. Then secondly, ask the question, why does it happen? Thirdly, when and how does it happen? And finally, whether or not it is good or bad. But I got some good news for you. Every bad habit can be replaced with a good habit. So let's look at the first, first thing that hesitation uses, that, that, that the devil uses to cause you to hesitate. Reason number one is what? Say it with me together. Fear. Fear is not a bad thing, but when it interferes with a good decision, it is in control of us rather than us being in control of it. Most of us don't know how to handle fear. Fear handles us. We fear things that don't happen. We fear things that happened a long time ago. And we fear things just because we fear things. Sometimes we live in fear because it's comfortable. Because it doesn't require any change. Because it doesn't require you to do anything differently. What are you afraid of? I don't know. Some people are afraid of heights. Some people are afraid of widths. Some people are afraid of wool. Somebody actually said, I think it was Kim. I didn't mean to say your name. Afraid of, afraid of uh, clowns? <laughs> yeah, some people are afraid of clowns. Some people are afraid of peanut butter or peanuts. Any peanuts in it? We've got Adventists that are afraid of cheese. <laughs> what on earth is cheese going <sighs> to... Is there cheese in it? <sighs> now, I'm going to be sensitive to those who may have a lacto intolerance. I could understand that, but, but brethren, <laughs> when you say, <laughs> I'm not going to say it. I'm not going to say it, Greg. I'm going to be nice. When you start finding more reasons to fear good decisions than to embrace good decisions, you are in trouble. And I'll tell you why. Look at 2 Timothy 1 verse 7. For God has not given us the spirit of what? Fear. What has he given us? Watch this. But a power of what else? Love. And what else? A sound mind. A sound mind. God requires you to make sound decisions. Why? Because he gave you a sound mind. Here's the thing that really gets me when people say, when you're in the position to make a decision, and this, this irritates me, when, when you are at the point of decision, somebody says, what do you think? 
Don't get me started. Peter did that when Jesus said to Peter, follow me. And Peter said, what about him? And Jesus said, if I want him to stand here till I return, it's none of your business. You follow me. So don't put, you know, like those game shows when you got like a, you know, you don't know what's behind the wall. And they say, which door would you pick? Door number one, door number two, door number three. It's always funny when they ask the crowd, which one should I pick? Because they don't know either. <laughs> but when the Lord makes it clear, salvation or destruction, heaven or hell, eternal gain or eternal loss, don't ask anybody to make that decision for you. Not even your spouse. I remember beginning an evangelistic series in California, and we made a call for a young man to give his life to the Lord. He was in the Navy. He stood up, and he and his wife were in the Navy, and his wife pulled his coattail. I found out afterwards, when he stood up, his wife pulled his coattail, and she said, if you go forward today, when you come home, I'll be gone. He sat back down. I wonder, why did he sit back down? And somebody said, well, I was sitting next to him, and his wife said, if you, if you go forward... When you come home, I'm gone. But I found out, though, they joined another church together later. What was, the, what was the issue? The devil did not want them to become a Seventh-day Adventist Christian. He wanted them to join some compromising sect where you could still... She had a lifestyle that she wanted to maintain, and this church would not allow her to maintain that. So he put her... She put him on the hot spot. You accept Jesus, I'm gone. I don't want to tell you what to do, but those are some hard moments. And you'll never know until you say, well, if you don't think our marriage is as important as salvation, then maybe you need to be gone. Now, I wouldn't say that. <laughs> That's a possible option because you don't just throw your marriage away that way. But I know of a couple once where I had a guy that made that decision and his wife was firmly established in her, in her, in her church and she said, I will not join that church. You know what he said? No problem. So he continued studying his lessons. It was amazing facts lessons. He would lay them around. He would have them by the side of his bed. He'd come home and in the living room. And then he had his breakfast on the table. He'd put one and come back and sit in the kitchen. He kept saying, wait a minute, something's going on here. He didn't ask her, did you read it? He didn't ask her, are you studying it? He kept doing it, and he kept noticing it. Wherever he put it, it was someplace else. Well, look, well, Mouse wasn't moving it around. His wife was. And when the decision came for the call of baptism, they both came forward to accept Jesus. And I baptized them both. Then I ended up baptizing their children and dedicating their children. So those are pickle moments. But he had already made up his mind. He already made up his mind, and he hesitated by his wife. And hesitation is the reason why Lot's wife was lost. Because Lot hesitated. And his hesitation caused her to look back. And so God has not given us the spirit of fear. When we fear things that we are not familiar with, that is why when God calls us to follow him, let me make it very clear, there is no fear in following the Lord. The only thing that may be an issue with us is we come to the realization that we've got to give up ourselves and begin to be more like Christ. But I want to say this. 
how beautiful it is when we die to self and are living in Christ. So what's the remedy to fear? Here it is. 1 John 4, verse 18. There is no fear where? In love. But perfect love, that's God's love, casts out fear. Because fear involves torment. But he who has not been made, but he who fears has not been made perfect in love. That means if you're dealing with fear, if you're dealing with fear, you got to take that fear to the Lord. Just like people ask God, take away my cigarettes, say, Lord, take away my fear. Take away my fear of men, of things, of decisions that affect my eternity. Take it away. Take away my fear of anything that I need to give up. Take it away and remove every obstacle between you and me that may cause me to fear making the best decision of my life. I know it. Not only years ago, but hey, throughout my walk as a minister, I've had to make decisions. And I look back on them now. At the moment, it seemed fearful, but I praise God, when you go beyond that fearful moment, the sun rises with healing in his wings. Reason number two, reason why we tend to hesitate. Low self-worth and lack of confidence. Let me make a point. Low self-worth. There are some people, for whatever reason, and I, I pray for them, there are some folk that have been Adventists most of their adult lives and still don't know their value in the sight of God because they're repeating their failed stories of childhood, what my parents did, what my friends did, what my first spouse did, what my neighborhood did, what my teacher did, what happened in church years ago. They hold on to those stories and they buy a trophy for every bad incident and they hold those trophies up and said, I remember when that happened. I'm so glad I had a trophy to memorialize a failure in my life. And you can't chisel away their failures because for some reason they tend to think that if I feel like I'm not worth much, then that will increase my worth in your eyes. That is a misconception. We are as valuable as God says we are. Come on, say amen. How, valu how valuable are we in the sight of God? Here it is. When you are a child of God, this is true about every one of us. 1 Peter 2, 9. Let's say this together. But you are a what? Chosen generation. This is God's estimation of his child. A royal what? Priesthood. A holy what? Nation. His own special people. And here's why he makes you that way, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous what? Marvelous light. That's why I'm, sometimes it saddens me that so many of us forget how capable we are and how capable we can be if we only allow ourselves to be in Christ. What does that mean? Here was, here's what it means. How valuable and how capable are we in Christ? Say it with me. I can do most things. Everything that God brings your way, you can accomplish through his strength. I'm not talking about being a jockey on a horse or jumping out of planes or flying like an eagle. I'm talking about the spiritual capabilities. God can make you a spiritual giant if you rely on his grace and his strength to make the difference in who you are. But if you try it on your own, you can't do it. That's the problem. We try on our own, and when we fail, that lack of self-worth and that lack of confidence comes back. I tried, Pastor, I really tried. 
That's the problem. You try. Stop trying and give it to the Lord. Amen? Amen. There's some people drowning themselves in self-pity and self and lack of confidence. That's why I love Isaiah 61. You know, when you have this issue of your self-worth and your lack of self-confidence, this is the reason why the Spirit of the Lord was upon Jesus. He said, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are where? Bound. This is not physical binding. This is not in prison like Bob goes to do prison ministry. This is people that are bound mentally. They're bound in the failures of their past. They were told by their parents, you will never be anything. And they believed it. They live it out. But the parents are long gone. They're, 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 they're now in the grave. They have turned to dust. And they still carry this, this phantom, I'll never be anything. Therefore, my parents said it. I've had adult people say to me, my father told me I'll never become anything. Well, where's your dad? Well, he died 15 years ago. I'm going to tell you, I had, that, I had that wall to get past. Being abandoned as, three, as a three-month-old, the lady raised me died. I had no connection with the church. Her husband, after she died, he didn't really care about what I did. I didn't know who my father was, my mother was, until I heard that story on the radio one day when this doctor was arguing with a young girl who said her parents never did anything for her. And that doctor said to that young girl that was saying, my mother never gave me anything. My mother never did this and never did that. And the doctor said, young lady, shut up. What did your parents give to you? And she said, nothing. She said, they gave you life. Shut up and do something with it. And I'm going to tell you, as I was sitting in my room that day on 15 Madison Street on the third floor, a young man, I was sitting in my room. I said, I'm either going to fail or I'm going to succeed. I'm going to succeed. This city is not going to take me down. And here I am today, by God's grace. I didn't make the best decisions right away. I was still partying. That's the crazy thing about it. I was still partying. But every time I got held up at gunpoint, God delivered me from that. Every fight I got in, God brought me through it. Gang violence, God did not allow me to get killed. Because when I made my decision, I said, I am not letting this city bring me down. So I'm living for another city. But you got to pray for God to free you here. This is where many of us are bound. Not because we don't believe the same things, but we're bound here. That's why the Lord says in Isaiah 61 and verse 3 these words. To those who are bound in their minds, to give them beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning, the garment of praise for what, friends? The spirit of heaviness. Don't glory in ashes. Don't make mourning your daily routine. Don't walk around with a spirit of heaviness when God wants to give you beauty, joy, and praise. Can you say amen? amen. Who is God? Who is he? If he can make the worlds by saying it, he can change my life if I allow him to do that. I refuse, I refuse to walk around with ashes and mourning all the time and the spirit of heaviness, nothing's working out my way. I want to be a joyful, praising, beautiful Christian so that somebody else can say, if it's working for him, what is it about that young man that I need to have? That's why God calls us to show forth his praises. The worst advertisement is a sour Christian. What church you join? Please don't tell them Thompsonville. Get it right. You know, you got you to you understand God has given you so much. 
God is capable of doing anything if we simply let him. Amen, somebody? So what's the, what's the answer to that? What is the answer to that? We found out. Trade your deficiency for God's sufficiency. Trade your lack for God's abundance. Here is the remedy. If you want to stick there until God delivers you, here's your remedy. 2 Corinthians 12 and verse 10. Therefore, and this is so true. This is so true about people that abound. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities. <laughs> that is so true. In reproaches, in needs, in persecutions, in distress. And here's the reason why. They've changed their perspective. What they're in essence saying here is Paul says, if I need to go through this, I need to find something positive about it. And I love what he says, for Christ's sake, together, for when I am weak, then I am strong. Until you find your strength in Christ, recognize in your weakness, God's strength is made perfect. Reason number three. Let's look at that. Just got two more and we're out of here. Comfort zone. Oh, man. I was preaching a sermon about, I was in my, at the Antioch Church in California. I was preaching, you know, every church I go through, there are people that have a comfort zone. In this church, we were having evangelism. Nobody wanted to support it. It was stressing me out. People just love the three angels. People love the blue angels. They would go to the blue angels ear show on Sabbath rather than coming to church to preach the three angels. I was so frustrated as a young pastor. And when I talked about evangelism, nobody wanted to do anything. And they were all in their comfort zones. And I remember one day saying, instead of going to see the blue angels, let's proclaim the three angels. Man, they got mad at me. Sent letters to the conference trying to get rid of this young man that said he's preaching at us too hard. And the conference said, keep it up. <laughs> they said, we're, we're behind you. They were behind me, 32 miles behind me. <laughs> they, were not, they were not there when I got the letters on my doorstep trying to get me to get irritated and walk away. One Sabbath morning, it got so bad, I said to the church, I ain't going anywhere till God tells me to leave. So leave me alone. <laughs> it was so bad, I want to just tell you guys this. It was so bad that after I left that church, I said, I don't want to pastor any more churches. So I interviewed for Amazing Facts, and they hired me. I was going to be an evangelist for Amazing Facts until I got a call to be the pastor at the Fearfield Church. And I said to my wife, when, when I was enjoying my spirit of mourning, my ashes, she said, at least go for the interview. I said, after that church, I don't want to pastor anymore. I'm done with all that drama. She says, so now you're telling God what to do? <laughs> Excuse me, whose side are you on? <laughs> so here we are, caught between goodbye and I love you. And, uh, <laughs> you know, Fairfield is here, Antioch is here. And there's a little small town called Isleton, Rio Vista. Rio Vista. And there's a small shop there. And I went for the interview. The interview went amazing. I, hoped, I was hoping it would bomb. But it, went, it was a phenomenal interview. And they said, you're the pastor we need. I'm thinking, I don't even want to be here. So I'm at the ice cream shop. And I'm sitting down there eating my, I just went ahead. I just went all for it. I got me a nice banana cream. I got me a, a banana split. Put all the non-Adventist stuff on it. <laughs> I need some cherries on there. Give me all the whipped cream. I just want to be clogged for years to come. 
<laughs> so I was upset. You ever get upset with God? Come on, be honest. All right, so I was mad at God because this, this wasn't right. He, Lord, you know I don't want to pastor there, so I am, you know, licking my wounds. I'm mad about the church that I want to go to. So I decided, all right, God, you want to mess with me? I'm going to mess with you. So, so I said to my wife, as she looking at me like, so now you're telling God what to do, and I'm thinking, you had to be here, right? <laughs> so I said, I'll tell you what, we're going to pray right now. So we prayed, April, we're praying in Rio Vista between goodbye and I love you. Okay, Lord, if you want me to go to, if you want me to go to Fairfield, stop amazing facts from coming to California. And Doug had already called me, Doug Bachelor, Pastor Bachelor, already called me and said they'll be there in two weeks. Already got the property, they're moving there. So, Lord, if you want me to go to Amazing, if you want me to go to Fairfield, stop Amazing Facts from coming to California. <laughs> I didn't hear God do it. I didn't hear Him say it, but He said, "So is that the conditions? I could do that." Two days later, I got a call from Doug Batchelor, and he said, "You know, we don't know what happened, but the deal fell through." <laughs> And it's going to be about two years before we can come to California. And I did one of those Jackie Gleason moves. Like, okay, Alice. <laughs> you old timers know what I'm talking about, right? Okay, Alice. And I, and I knew that God wanted us to go to Fairfield. And I want to tell you, Fairfield, where I met Brother Dick Hutchinson, Fairfield restored our joy for pastoral ministry. It was one of our favorite churches and still to this very day, a lot of people keep in touch with us. It was at Fairfield that I met Brother Hutchinson, my head elder, my treasurer. And that church grew like amazing leaps and bounds. If you didn't come to church before Sabbath school was done, you had sat in the foyer. Our Wednesday night Bible study was full. Full. And so many conversions took place on our Wednesday night Bible study because we had people inviting folk from their colleges and their workplaces to come to, come to the to church service on Wednesday night. Young man by the name of Mario. Mario Navarro. He's now pastoring in the Nevada, Utah conference. He was a young Catholic man who came to our Wednesday night Bible study. And I preached a sermon about giving their lives to Christ. And he took that sermon and passed it out all through college. Now he's a pastor in the ministry. But I was in a comfort zone. And there's so many people in a comfort zone. Things that bring us to the place of our familiarities. We always want to know how it's going to come out. We always want to know the end result. We want to know what God is going to do before God does it. And we say, I'll feel safe if I could simply control it. And we find out that the real world is not that way, that we are not in control of anything. Isn't that right? The more you think you're in control of, the more God reminds you, Bob, you ain't in control of anything. And then we get to this place where God is saying, you got to abandon your bubble. Because you don't like decisions that challenge you, and you like to control the outcome. But for those who like to be in control, here's the remedy. Here's the remedy. And I use this passage because the Lord did not suggest this to Joshua. Joshua 1, and he says, have I not, say it together, 
commanded you. God don't suggest things to folk that are in comfort zones. He tells them, you need to do this. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and of good courage. Do not be afraid. When you leave your comfort zone, don't be afraid. When you leave your comfort zone, do not be dismayed. Why? For the Lord your God is where? With you wherever you go. Isn't that comforting? Now that's a comfort zone. That's a comfort zone. So when we're on the plane and turbulence hits on our way back from Singapore, on our way to Singapore, my wife grabs my hand and tightens up. I'm cool. If we're on God's mission, this turbulence is going to pass. Amen? Like when I was landing in St. Louis and the plane just wouldn't. That Southwest airline, every time it came down, the wind pushed it back up. Have you noticed any time you come back to St. Louis, that's where the turbulence is? I said to the lady next to me, she said, why are you so calm? I said, I'm on a mission from God. I actually said that. <laughs> and I said, if it's God's will, because I was landing to go home to pack to fly to the Philippines to join Heritage back in 2009. If God wants me to be there, I'll be there. You see, friends, when we follow Christ is not a risk. It is a calculated risk. Let me tell you what I mean. You know what calculated means? We consider what the challenge is, and we consider the impact. And when you look at that in the Bible, the disciples made calculated risks. What does a fisherman do? What do, what do fishermen do? Fish. So why did they do this? Look at Matthew 4, verse 20. Why did they do this? And this is what the gospel talks about. These two words show up time and time and time and time again in the gospel. Because these men were in their comfort zone as fishermen, but when the Lord extended the invitation, notice what the Bible says. They, what? Immediately left their nets and followed him. If you want to be saved in the comfort zone, you will never be saved there. God will upset your comfort so that you can come to the conclusion that all he wants to do is have you follow him. And what does that mean? Follow me and I will make you. No, stop the fish part. You're always thinking about fish. Follow me and I will make you. That's the part I want. You will not be made if you don't follow the Lord. But some of us want to be made before we follow him. He said, no, follow me and I will make you. We don't take risks. So here's the calculation. Remember the rich young ruler? He had a lot of money, didn't he? A lot of possessions, didn't he? And he decided, this is not the risk I want to take. Here's what he missed. Matthew chapter, Mark 10, verse 30. Here's what he missed. When they said, Lord, who could be saved? Here's what the Lord says. Who shall not receive a hundredfold now and this time and in the age to come eternal life? The Lord would have given that young man a hundred times more. That's not a risk. That's a blessing. But some of us will never know that because we like our comfort zone. If I become an Adventist, does it mean that I can't do this or can't do that? No, what it means is you can't go to hell. You'll go to heaven. <laughs> Let's make it plain, right? Evangelists are not evangelists alone. They are fire. They sell fire insurance, right? And life insurance. And retirement policies. Whose benefit is out of this world. You heard me say it. But I'm going to say it again. At the end of this row, there are only two seats, smoking and non-smoking. I plan on being in the non-smoking. What about you? It's not a risk. It's not a risk. 
It's a blessing. Stop trying to make it your way. Get out of the comfort zone and let God increase your blessing. Reason number four. Reason number four. And I have one more. I'll be done today, I promise. Reason number four. Too many options. Say that with me. Too many options. You know, when I went to the doctor there in, in, in uh, West Frankfurt, when you're signing up to, to, to get exams, that paper they give me always irritates me. It's like three pages. Jill, you've got to check off all the things that are wrong with you. Hydrophobia, claustrophobia, rickets, crickets. It's like, and I'm going down the list, and I'm not checking anything off. And I turn the page, and there's another checkbox. 60 more things. Are you allergic to your shortness of breath, length of legs, your eyes are not working, your feet are short? I mean, and then I, got, I'm, I don't check anything, I go to the last page. Is there any medication you're allergic to? Allergic to milk, cheese, butter, eggs, Adventist, you know, anything. <laughs> I'm thinking, I'm not checking anything. So I took it to the counter. This is a true story. I took it to the counter, and the nurse flipped it around. She said, you didn't fill the section out. I said, because none of those things apply to me. She said, at least pick one. <laughs> at least pick one. I said, okay, I'm a particular. I'm tired. At least pick one. Too many options. The problem with so many of us is we look at salvation as too many options. But it's really only two. Saved and lost. Heaven or hell. Eternal life or eternal lost. It's only two options. That's why God does not overwhelm us when it comes to salvation. Here's what he does for us. Here's why salvation is so beautiful. He says in Deuteronomy 30 and verse 19, he says, I call earth, heaven and earth as witness today against you that I have set before you, what are the two things, friends? Life and death. What else? Blessings and cursings. And I love this part. He doesn't say pick one. He even shows us. He said, therefore, what? Choose life that both you and your descendants may live. That's God. Amen? Amen? He says, you have too many options in your life. So instead of giving you more choices, I'm going to tell you which one to pick. You option thief, you. You person that one more option. In your case, you don't need any more options. You needed to make a decision. So choose life. Choose life. Choose life. Choose it. All right, all right. And all of a sudden, your life takes off in such a beautiful way when you choose life. Let me say to those of you that are hesitating about life, you think you're holding on to something. No, you ain't holding on to nothing. It's not until you give your life to Christ that you understand what he meant when he said, choose life. I could have been that same. We could have been in Florida right now doing I don't know what. Or maybe in New York City when we tried to get an apartment right after we started got married, what would our life have been? But I would rather, I would, I would, if, I, if God gave me all the options of this life, that life in Florida, that life in New York, there has been some things I could have been done differently, and, but it was my choice, it's not God's. But I would have said, give me that one with all of his trials and tribulations, give me that one. Because God knows how to bless, does he not? And the last category, here it is. The last category, this was, this was Felix's problem. This was Felix's problem. Overthinking. When you study this, to think twice before you do something is completely normal. Hmm, should I buy that car or that car? 
Should I go on that vacation or that vacation? Should I do this or should I not do that? Thinking is okay. But when you find yourself constantly thinking about the same thing over and over and over and over and over and over. I'm trying to illustrate overthinking. And over and over and over. And then you don't make a decision about changing nothing. You have the same problem that Elijah had to address in his day. Here's what he said in 1 Kings 18, verse 21. And Elijah came to all the people and said, these are the people that were overthinking. How long will you falter between how many opinions? It's not that deep. Here's the choice. If the Lord is God, together, follow him. But if Baal, what? Followed him. And here's what these overthinking people couldn't even decide. But the people answered him not a word. You know why? Because they were so busy practicing hesitation. They couldn't even decide on something that simple, Ryan. If God is God, serve him. If Baal is God, serve him. What do we do? I don't know. You going to say anything? No. What are you going to do? They answered him not a word. Can you imagine how frustrating that was for Elijah? I could, see, I could hear him saying, what other altar call can I make? It's so simple. Here's the remedy as I close. Here's the remedy. Make a decision. Here's the remedy. What is the, what is the remedy? Make a decision. Choose for yourselves next week. When? This day whom you will serve. Those who are overthinking cannot make a decision. Salvation still eludes them. And the more they decide not to make a decision, they fail to realize it is a decision. He said, come on now. How long is it going to be? You've been fighting this thing for the longest. How long have you been attending our church and you still can't make a decision about the Sabbath? You still don't know whether or not salvation is what God wants you to accept? What's your problem? How long will you halt between two opinions? So Joshua comes to the very same people. Choose for yourselves today whom you will serve. You see, friends, the worst statement that Felix made was go away for now when I have a convenient time I'll call you so as I close let me tell you what happened to Felix Felix kept Paul in prison for two years the Jews probably forgot about him the elders forgot about him and do I have to say his name? <laughs> the other guy, <laughs> Tertullus, or Tertullius, or the other guy, forgot about the situation. Here's my point. You're still stressing, and folk forgot about it. Amen? You're still stressing about your decision. And everybody's moved on. But why do you keep it there? Because your motivation is selfish. What was the motivation? Look at verse 26 of Acts 24. Meanwhile, 
He also hoped that money would be given him by Paul. That was his motivation. Money was between him and his salvation. That he might release him. Therefore, he sent for him more often and conversed with him. Come on, Paul. Are you going to give me that money now? Paul said, no. Take him back to jail. Paul has been three months. Change your mind? No. Take him back to jail. Here's the problem with hesitation. During that time, Felix never decided about righteousness, never decided about self-control, never decided about the judgment to come. And what happened eventually? This is what God did to Felix. But after two years, Proceus Festus succeeded Felix. And Felix, wanting to do the Jews a favor, left Paul bound. God said, you don't deserve being governor because you can't even make a good decision. And he took him out of leadership and put Festus in his position. He said, it's time for you to move on. Here's the problem, friends. When you hesitate and hesitate and hesitate and hesitate and hesitate and God trying to get your attention, he's going to say, you know what? I don't have any uses for you any longer. Get somebody else. You are not worthy to be in that position. You, are not, you don't have the mental faculty to make decisions about righteousness, self-control, and judgment. Festus, you know the way. You know the way better than everybody else that has caused you to try to inflict and condemn Paul. You know the way. You have a more excellent knowledge. You know what Paul is saying is true, but you hesitate. Now you need to be gone. And Felix was never spoken of again. Felix was never spoken of again. He ignored the most opportune time. And here's what I say as I close. God gave me this also during the night. To ignore opportunity for convenience is to seal your fate through hesitation. To ignore opportunity for convenience is to seal your fate through hesitation. Quickly, let's go through this. Number one, A, don't let fear rob you of your best life in Christ. B, don't let so low self-worth or lack of confidence become your prison. Amen. C, don't let your comfort zone become the Titanic that drowns you in regret. D, don't let too many options distract you from the best decision. And lastly, E, don't let overthinking Prevent you from what you know is right to do. This quotation shook my core, Ricky. I found this and I could not hesitate but to bring it on the screen today. Excuse me for preaching so long. I don't normally do that. <laughs> y'all better stop it. And y'all didn't even hesitate. That's the problem. But this is powerful. Cecil, George W. Cecil said, On the plains of hesitation, the bones of countless millions who at the dawn of decision sat down to wait, and while waiting, they died. That got to my bones when I saw that. They were hesitating, waiting, 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 and while they, and while waiting, they died. That doesn't have to be the way your story ends. That doesn't have to be the way your story ends. Here we are, 2022. It's got just a few more weeks left. 
To God be the glory. But we're about to go into 2023. Why am I preaching this sermon? Because right now is a what? Come on, say it. Is a what? Conven there is no better time than now. There is no time better than now. So I'm going to challenge you. I'm going to ask each one of you. I'm going to ask you all, first of all, I'm not going to ask you what category you're in, but if you know that there's something in your life you've been hesitating about that you want God to deliver you from, would you stand? It could be fear, low self-worth, lack of confidence, comfort zone, too many options, overthinking, whatever it is. I don't want what George Cecil said to become a reality in your life because there's no better time than now. There's no time better than now. That's why the Lord said to this people that refuse to, refuse to follow, he says in Hebrews 3.15, today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your heart. Today I want to pray a special prayer. I'm not going to ask you to come forward. But by raising your hand, you've already stood and said, yes, there's something in your life you're hesitating about. But if you want to pray about it now, if you want to pray, you want to put that before God, you want to get out of that comfort place, that option place, that overthinking place, you want to get out of that and say, Lord, I don't want to be like Festus that you eventually move out of the way because I've just hesitated so long I've lost relevance in your eyesight. I want to leave this thing behind me and move into a new year with a new attitude, a new vision, a new goal, a new dream. I am done hesitating because this is the time you've offered me the blessing of following you. If there's somebody here today that by the raising of your hand, you're saying, God, you know what that is in my life. You know what it is that I'm hesitating about. You know what I'm hesitating about? I want you to get it out of my life. I don't want to be the Festus who's never heard of before. I want to be the son and daughter of God who unfallen worlds hear about my transformed life because I hesitated no more. Lord Jesus, today is a convenient time for every one of us we have seen the trajectory of our past. We've seen the tape of our past. And Lord, we see by faith, by faith, the trajectory of our future. This walk is not a sight walk, it's a faith walk. I just need to know that I can trust you. And Father, there's no evidence I have that says to the otherwise. There's nothing that you've done that says to me, I can't trust you. So today, Father, I'm trusting you with my decisions, with my life. I'm trusting you with a determination to go beyond my hesitation, my comforts, the way I feel about myself, even the fears that lock me in. Lord, get rid of the options that keep me distracted and stop me from overthinking this and say simply, Lord, have your way with my life. Today, take our brothers and sisters here in Thompsonville. Take those of us who work at 3ABN, those of us who are on the front lines to push people beyond their hesitation. May we ourselves not hesitate. So you hear our hearts. You hear our prayer. Help us to take, take time, take time to be holy and not to hesitate. And finally, Father, when 
the day comes that we see you face to face, what a joy it's going to be to know that, yes, you understand us so better, so much better than we understand ourselves. And we have the privilege of standing in your presence because you broke us and freed us. And now you come to take us home. May that be our experience in the not-too-distant future. In Jesus' name I pray and all of God's people said, Amen.